today on Gias's Corn Streams, Jonathan Mendoza and Dr. Megan Connell join me in talking about mental health and well-being in tabletop role-playing. Greetings, adventurers! I hope you're all keeping well during quarantine. My name is Vivek Santayana, and you're listening to the third episode of Gias's Quarant Streams podcast. For many of us, tabletop role-playing is important to our mental well-being. It forms the basis of our social lives, and is an inherently collaborative and creative hobby. It gives us a space to safely explore complex themes and ideas central to our experience. Now difficult times like these have thrown into sharp relief how valuable such a hobby is for our mental well-being. So to reflect on this, I got in touch with two specialists on the theme. Dr. Megan Connell, a clinical psychologist who uses D&D as a form of therapy, and Jonathan Mendoza, a game designer and consultant who is studying for a master's in performance therapy. Both of them had some really insightful things to say about how tabletop role-playing can be beneficial for our mental health, and how the structural inequalities of race and gender might affect gamers' well-being. But before we get to that, there are some important caveats I'd like to emphasize just to make sure we're all on the same page. So, in preparing for this interview, Jonathan Mendoza said to me that whilst tabletop role-playing can be therapeutic, it isn't therapy. So we're not suggesting that GMs or players offer each other support or help each other working through issues, nor are we suggesting that tabletop role-playing is a substitute for therapy. D&D therapy only works insofar as it is administered by a professional who is trained and licensed to do so. Instead, these conversations are about how we as gamers can be sensitive of mental health issues so we can mitigate harm rather than fix it. And finally, if you are having difficulties with your mental health, know that it's okay not to feel okay. Especially in the times we're in now, when the world is being ravaged by a pandemic, not only is the news really terrifying, but social distancing can also be really hard on us. On top of that, people from marginalized backgrounds face traumatic experiences every day as they negotiate their day-to-day life. If you're feeling this way, know that it's okay to reach out and ask for help. Maybe try reaching out and talking to someone, like your friends and family for a start, or even maybe speak to your GP on what professional help you can get. If you feel like you're especially in a point of crisis and you need someone to talk to urgently, you can always call Samaritans on 116123. I'll provide a link to other mental health resources in the description. If you experience any difficulties at GIAS, meanwhile, please feel free to contact the Society's Equality and Wellbeing Officer, which happens to be me, at gias.welfare at gmail.com. Now that we've got that out of the way, let's get back to the podcast. At their heart, tabletop role-playing games are a form of creative expression. We play characters, take on different personas, and work together using our imagination to interact with fictional worlds of our own devising. Both my guests for this episode work in the field of mental health, and they use tabletop role-playing to therapeutic ends. So I asked them what benefits such forms of creative expression can have. Any any tabletop role-playing game, not just D&D, but anyone where you are taking on the persona of a character, it forces you to build theory of mind. That was Dr. Megan Connell a licensed clinical psychologist practicing in Charlotte, North Carolina. She's the co-founder of Geeks Like Us, a website and YouTube channel dedicated to geeks being unapologetically enthusiastic and supporting each other. Megan also loves playing D&D, and amongst other things, she facilitates D&D therapy groups alongside her clinical practice. This is what she had to say about the therapeutic benefits of D&D, 
and how it is an exercise in developing one's theory of mind. What theory of mind is essentially is empathy. It's the ability to see the world from somebody else's perspective, from their own unique view, and taking that into account rather than you. And so it really, it's an exercise in empathy because it forces you to step into someone else's skin for a while and to see what the world is like through their eyes and to their experience. But also we get to have these different experiences that we might not get to have in our day-to-day -day life. In a D&D campaign, your closest best friend can die before your eyes and you can't save them. And that emotional trauma, even though your friend is still sitting right across the table from you and the emotions we experience in that can be very real and can feel really real. And so it gives us this opportunity to experience that in a safe way where it's once removed and can help kind of prime us for how we interact with things in our lives. It also gives us this really safe space to explore different ways of being and instant feedback on how we are. Um, I think sometimes we blunder through life not understanding how we're coming off to other people. And D&D gives us this wonderful way to reflect back to us how we're being through how the NPCs treat us and the dungeon master can say, well, the NPC is treating you this way because you did X, Y, or Z to them and starting to see a little bit more and reflect more on our own behaviors. While theory of mind is fundamentally about empathy, what I find interesting is that it's not just about feeling a certain way towards another character, but actively trying to understand and embody their specific worldviews and experiences. Megan further elaborates. When we are interacting with other people, a lot of times we assume knowledge that we have is something that they know. And I think D&D and tabletop role-playing games in general give us this wonderful opportunity to learn how to see the perspective of somebody who has a different worldview from us in that way of like, they don't know that this type of creature is resistant to fire. So of course they're going to cast their fire spell. Like they, they don't know that. And maybe starting to recognize like it's not about going in and berating the person who's using the fire spell against the thing that's immune to fire because it's like no they that character didn't know it and they were role playing exactly right um and when we can do that i think we become more compassionate towards one another as well and maybe trying to take that you know i don't know if it instantly is going to make people go oh let me consider what they know and what they don't know I think it gives us the tools to increase our ability to do that thing, to take that step back and to look at things from a different perspective. Furthermore, the way that RPGs encourage us to embody certain characters brings with it a performative dimension. This is especially valuable when we consider the therapeutic benefits from a drama therapy perspective. But one of the things that sort of performance or drama therapy really looks at is the ability to play roles. Uh, and if this, if you've played a role-playing game, this sounds familiar. That was Jonathan Mendoza, or Rayumasa as he's known online. Jonathan is a freelance consultant with a focus on community safety and crisis management, equity, inclusion, and race. Jonathan was formerly involved in facilitating organized play events at his local Adventurers League, as well as conventions like PAX East and PAX Unplugged. He stepped back to study drama therapy, with the aim of bringing theatrical and drama therapy techniques to tabletop gaming. This is what he said about the therapeutic benefits of TRPGs, with particular emphasis on the processes that drama therapy looks at. So what performance therapy does is says, okay, here's a role. What does this look like to you? you know, how does this play out? But let's try it in a bunch of different situations and let's see how that works in different contexts and different scenarios so that you have a chance to practice what this role means to you in as close to the real world as you can get without it being actually the real world. And there's this concept of uh, like liminal space or the play space is what, is what they'll call it. And 
it means that this is a space which is as close to reality as you can make it or as far from reality as you want to make it, but still has an aspect of, you know, you're a person in a room. It's not, you're not going to sprout wings and fly, but you can pretend and play with it. You are when that point you can say, okay, well, how do these things relate to issues in your life? This idea that TRPGs can be a safe place where players can practice social interactions is something that resonates with how Dr. Connell applies D&D in her clinical practice. Moreover, she emphasizes the benefit of the social dimension of this activity. So with the um, groups that I run, it's really about a place to rehearse behavioral change. And it's also working on getting the players to come together and to learn collaboration and cooperation and support for one another. And it's essentially giving us this safe space. Again, the safe space is really important in my understanding of the game to explore and to create strong bonds and to step away from competition and to embrace collaboration and to lean into that. You know, so rather than getting stuck and thinking like, oh, we have to do things this way, we can do things a different way. And like, instead of learning that you can be a valuable member of the team, even if you're not the one in the spotlight all the time and how to be a supportive person and let other people have their time in the spotlight as well and dancing around all of that. Both Megan and Jonathan have worked a lot with Dungeons and Dragons 5th edition. I asked them whether they've used other role-playing systems, and if different systems that are oriented specifically towards handling emotional themes and interpersonal relationships can have therapeutic benefits. Their perspective on the subject was really interesting with some rather subtle contrasts. D&D and the ways to hack D&D to be therapeutic are a lot of the ways I'm familiar with just because of the work that's being done. So a lot of the places such as Game to Grow up in Seattle and then I think, so Save Point and like they use versions of D&D and Megan Canal uses versions of D&D, uh, but they all hack D&D specifically to make it a bit more therapeutic. Uh, and so the game that you play therapeutically for fifth edition doesn't really look like the game in the book per se. Um, but I've been look. I've done that. I've looked at LARPs specifically uh, as well because LARPing is the thing that I also very much enjoy. So I've looked at uh, ways to use LARPs therapeutically. One example I can think of is there's a wonderful LARP by I believe Cat Jones. I want to say called Revived, um, which is a, a support group for the partially deceased, uh, and it's basically you are playing people who were essentially zombies. Um, and then got cured of like the angry brain-eating zombie thing and got back to being people for the most part who are like LARPing a support group. They're like LARPing therapy. So I've done, I've looked at, I've looked at D&D, I've looked at LARP. I specifically have been looking at Powered by the Apocalypse stuff as well. Um, uh, specifically like we're playing Monster Hearts in the research lab at my school now, which is awesome. The main sort of focus is, is what goals therapeutically are you trying to reach and how do those systems or the systems you choose map to those goals. Um, so D&D, for example, is really good because it's a really good new entry point. A lot of people know what D&D is um, in a way that a lot of people who don't know won't know what Masks or Monster Hearts is if, they've, if their exposure to it is like Stranger Things or Critical Role or The Adventure Zone. And so they have an, they have an expectation of what the game looks like. Because of that, there's, uh, there's cultural awareness, there's expectation, and because you sort of know the tropes that you're playing with, you can work in that game a little easier if you, rather than just being thrown into something and having to learn it from scratch. Uh, I have many, many, I have a bookshelf over here that is filled with many different gaming systems. A quick aside for everyone who can't actually see Megan's bookshelf, like that is an extraordinary collection of role-playing games there. Um, I have a very hard time reading technical manuals. Um, I have a learning challenge that makes specifically technical writing very difficult for my brain to process. I can process 
story very easily. Um, but crunchy rule stuff, my brain just does not like. So it's very, even uh, there's a system called Emberwind that I really desperately want to start running because uh, it was actually written by a psychologist uh, and it's dealing with existential crises and the character creation process is designed to be almost like a personality test. And I think it is a cool system. I just can't read through it. So, um, and it's nothing to the author. That's just, I have a hard time with that with my brain. Um, so while I've only used D&D, you most certainly can use any system out there. It's not about a particular system being therapeutic. Um, it's bringing therapy into play. Uh, so I, I do a training with Dr. Boko Mazzaro. We work together. We've come up with a model on how to train people using tabletop role-playing games. And that's the one of the big things is it's not about finding a therapeutic tool. It's about taking a tool that you do and putting it into the game. Um, so like, uh, and as far as these games that are more explicit towards the emotional content being more therapeutic, I think it's more on, again, can I bring the tools that I know into this game that I know? If you have a mastery of the game and mastery of these therapy tools and are willing to play and willing to go there, you can weave all this stuff together pretty much in any system. Uh, it's just, you want to be comfortable with the particular gaming system. I'm most comfortable with Dungeons and Dragons, but that's not to say that that's the only system out there to use. Both Megan and Jonathan emphasize that it's not so much about the system itself, but about using that system with intent in order to create a therapeutic environment. Megan is agnostic about systems. Meanwhile, Jonathan stresses the need to consider how the mechanics and feel of different games, as well as people's familiarity with the system, match the therapeutic objectives one sets out with. But regardless of the system or rule sets one uses, what matters the most in any TRPG is the safety of the play environment that we create. So, my guests and I discussed safety tools and how to handle challenging content in the game in a way that avoids harming or re-traumatizing players. So there's two things about this. Uh, one, don't do therapy on your friends. Just don't, don't do therapy on your friends. If you're not a therapist, you don't know what you're doing. If you are a therapist, there's a lot of ethical concerns about doing therapy on your friends that you should just avoid. Um, and the reason I say this is because a lot of people will, you know, in the cases of things like Monster Hearts, and like I am absolutely guilty of this, I've played with, you know, identity and my own, you know, my own stuff. Um, the the difference is, is that there are, there are a lot of things that you can do as a GM, as a group, to sort of talk about what you're doing. A good session zero session zeros depending on how many things you want to talk about is always a good idea you always want to be like hey i'm thinking of playing this character with this stuff you know as this thing and make sure people are okay with you know doing that especially if it's something that is very close and dear to you make sure people are okay with you know doing that work for you um because what you're asking what you're, the ask that you're making of a group when you say you know i want to play with this thing that has a lot of stuff to do with my own stuff is this stuff might be really activating for me. Um, and I, this may not, this like, and this may happen. Uh, is everyone okay with that? Um, so there is that aspect of the intentional ask of the work of what you're playing with. Uh, and then there's also the intentional ask of, I don't want to play with this, you know? So say things like safety tools, lines and veils, those are all really great things to in the moment of play say, okay, wait, whoa, hold on, stop. This is not something I can play with or not something I want to, I want to work with right now. Consent and intent is huge. Um, having that session zero where we talk through the rules, we talk through what is 
going to be in the game, what's not going to be in the game, what the safety tools are. Um, if you're running a game that is explicitly designed to be emotional, you want to have some form of safety tool, tool built into it. Um, if you haven't seen Monty Cook's Consent in Gaming, um, check it out. It is free. It's a free PDF. Yes, you do have to log in to, and create an account with Monty Cook and buy it by adding it to your cart, but it's free. So as soon as you hit buy, it just lets you download it. Um, but it is a wonderfully written um, short little packet on what the different consent tools are, why consent is important. Um, and then it has this wonderful one pager at the very end that you can hand out to your players and they can check off on what topics they're okay with, what they're not okay with, what they're sort of okay with. And it can really help you as a game master to ensure that you're running a game that's going to have elements in it that your players are going to enjoy because we don't want to re-traumatize and bring up, you know, horrible real life stuff in the game we're playing because we just want to enjoy the game, right? The second thing is that there is a big, big, big difference between the game you play at home and the game you play on stream. The general, the general rule of thumb for streams is remember that you have an audience. Uh, you have an audience and those audience, that audience does not know you. In, in that case for Lines and Veils there, you have to think about two very different things. You have to think about the safety of your players and the safety of your audience. And we this is where things like content warnings, so like, uh, you know, kind of base it off of the rating system. If you have nothing else to go by, just use a TV rating system. It's the easiest thing you're going to get. Use that as your model and then go a little bit further in depth if you need to. Because, you know, someone watching this might resonate or might be activated by the content that you're bringing up. And then, like, whose, whose responsibility is that? But the third thing we're talking about is responsibility in the tabletop gaming space. Um, and there are two pieces to this and there's one that we talk about a lot and the one that we don't talk about i think often enough uh one the gm has a lot of responsibility you are the person whose job is to facilitate and oversee this game for the most part that means you know pay attention to your players if someone looks like they're uncomfortable check in with them you know be a be a person who's paying active and intentional attention to the state of the players in your game because that is part of your job uh, it's part of your responsibility um but as a player, remember that the GM's job is not to therapize you in the moment if something goes wrong. They're not qualified for that. And if they are qualified that for that, they can't do it. Uh, they can help a little bit, but they cannot walk you through problems. Uh, you, if, you are, if you are intentionally playing with something that you know might activate you or something does activate you, have a support like having a support network for yourself and responsibility for your own stuff is important in the moment as well because there is we run we run a very big risk of games becoming therapy for people with a bunch of people who are not prepared or did not want to do therapy emotional labor for you uh and this is why I keep stressing ask, 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 like talk at the beginning because you do not want to put people in a position where their entire game gets derailed so that, they can, that we can handle the emotional content for a person if they are not willing to do that because that just causes all kinds of snowballing issues. It's not your job as the DM to fix your players. It's not your job to get them through the trauma. It's your job to be a good friend and good GM. 
Um, I do run, have a YouTube series called Psychology at the Table where I talk about this. Um, again, it's not to turn you as a GM into a psychologist. That's completely inappropriate. Don't do that. It's how do you handle your friend with anxiety at the table? How do you work with somebody who has a mathematics disorder? How do you work with a friend who's struggling with depression? And it's just simple tools that you anybody can use to be a better friend to somebody who's going through different struggles. I think the simplest way, though, is we check check in with a play. You know, when an X card or something is tossed, we take a bio break. We check in with that player and just say, is there anything you need to have happen? Is it okay? Is us just walking away going to be okay? Or is that invalidating to you? Is there something else that you need? And that the player can say privately like what, what it is that they need. Um, and I think just the other thing too that's good for anybody, but GMs in particular, is just to know resources. Um, my friends uh, run an organization called Take This. It's a charitable group that works with people in the gaming community. On their website, they have a resource list. It is crisis hotlines. It is how to find a therapist. It is all kinds of wonderful resources. And so just knowing that to, if your friend's like, uh, this is a lot for me, I kind of can't deal with it. And it's like, okay, let's look at this. And, you know, here's some resources that can help. Both Jonathan and Megan make some really valuable points about the responsibilities on both GMs and players to be sensitive to each other's mental well-being at the table, as well as the limits to where those responsibilities end. It's not our job to fix our fellow gamers, but it's our job to be good friends. The important thing is that there are tools that enable us to be kinder and more supportive friends to our fellow gamers, and to look out for each other and make sure our table remains inclusive. Having said that, for those of us from marginalized backgrounds within the community, there are particular barriers we face that affect our mental well-being on a regular basis. These include things like discrimination within the community and industry, hurtful representations of marginalized groups in gaming content, and harassment and bullying that we often face for existing in this community or having opinions. Now, Gius has a stringent zero-tolerance policy towards harassment and bullying, and we have enacted a strict anti-harassment policy as well as a complaints procedure in our commitment to ensuring the safety of all our members. But these things unfortunately do happen. One recent example was the so-called debate that blew up a couple of weeks ago over the treatment of orcs in D&D. And like all social media trash fires about race, BIMPOC people in America and BAME people in the UK were on the receiving end of a lot of it. Megan and I spoke in very general terms about how gamers from marginalized backgrounds can keep ourselves safe within a community that can sometimes be hostile towards our presence. Megan and I weren't referring to any specific individuals or incidents, but we were speaking in abstract terms about keeping ourselves safe and dealing with hostility. I think it's really important for us to understand, first off, that there's no such thing as a community that is 100% safe. Because communities are made up of humans and no human is 100% good or 100% bad. We do not have a strict alignment personally. I tend to believe that people try their best. I think most people out there try to do their best, but we all screw up and we all have bad days and we say things that we don't mean or we don't understand the ramifications of a situation or we're tired and we just tweet something out quickly or whatever. And so it, I think we can have, there's a double-edged sword there because on the one hand, we want to be educational and supportive of people and also hold people accountable and help them foster and grow. And so I, I don't, I'm not a fan of the witch hunt that we seem to do sometimes online to find ways to tear people down. I don't think that's really helpful. I want us to have grace and understanding. That being said, though, there are some people who are intentionally hurtful or just go out there to intentionally stir the pot. And 
know that what they're saying is seen as hurtful and disrespectful or and wrong and choose to do it anyway. And that, that's sad and it's hard. And we want to stay away from those types of people. You know, hopefully they can come to a position in life where they, they, where they can grow and change. Um, it's not always our job to go out and educate people. Um, I was actually just thinking about this. There's a wonderful series of TED Talks on confronting hate and confronting people who are stuck in um, their worldviews. Uh, it's just, it's wonderful of talking about how to talk through change language and how to help people move from one point to another. Um, and I think that's really important. And like the other thing too is like, we need to learn to accept people for who they are. We, acceptance does not mean we like it, right? It just means they are as they are. Um, I'm going to pull up two quotes from one of my favorite humans to ever exist, uh, Maya Angelou. You know, she had this wonderful quote where she said, when someone shows you who they are, believe them. And so like if so-and-so that you work with is a jerk at work and they've been a jerk at the barbecues and they've been a jerk when you meet them for lunch, probably a jerk most of the time. And so don't be surprised when they act like a jerk because that's who they are. That's their stripes, right? And when we can learn to accept and see people for who they are, it's incredibly powerful because like, it's not the thing of we dehumanize them and say like they're a villain. It's just like, okay, this is so-and-so. They're good in this, this, and this situation. They're terrible over here. And maybe I can work with them and they can be a little less terrible, but I understand that that's the type of person they are. Um, the other thing that Maya Angelou said that I think is just so incredibly powerful and wonderful, um, which is whenever we see a human doing something terrible to another human, don't ever say, I would never do that. Because the person doing that horrible thing is a human and you are a human too. And you have the same capacity within you to do all of the acts of hate and of love that other humans do. And so when we see somebody doing something hateful, it's not I would never do that. It's, I hope I never do that. And understanding and building that compassion. And again, compassion is something that D&D gives us. And so hopefully we can learn to lean into it and listen and understand, you know, situations and understand things. Um, I was, I've become aware of the whole orc debate, I think last week. And it's, it's our job to listen and to understand what the problem is. And I think that's something really important too, just the power of listening and trying to understand someone's perspectives to, again, build that empathy, build that theory of mind, walk in their shoes for a minute and try to see what it is they're seeing. As you will probably surmise from the tone of our discussion on this topic, the stakes of the conversation were very different in my interview with Jonathan. We were two people of color discussing race in TRPGs. So naturally the matter was much more personal to us which is why we address the matter more directly. Okay, so let's talk about orcs. The reason why this is a problem all the time is that if those tropes continue and perpetuate, people accept those, come to accept those tropes as the way you play games. While that doesn't intrinsically make you a shitty person for saying that, what it does say is that these are the expectations you have of your fiction, of your fantasy, of your role-playing. So you know, there's always, the, always going to be a power aspect of who's killing who. Uh, and for and while it doesn't necessarily mean that the game itself is going to be racist in the way it does that, but what it does mean is that you're looking at a bunch of people who want to play games for a similar cathartic release, and for some people that means killing insert random people here. And then for some people that's killing a bunch of people 
as somebody who looks like you killing a bunch of people who look like you and that's different as an experience you know the way in the way that you are you identify with who's on screen at any given moment what you end up with is is that orcs are based on stereotypical portrayals of certain races and are stereotyped and troped in such a way that it very closely resembles a lot of them. There is a, a large amount of documented evidence saying that even if they are not allegory for these races, Tolkien-based orcs on the like least attractive of the Mongol types or something, like something to that extent, straight up says that to Europeans. That means that the people who are reading this book are these other Europeans, for the most part, who are going to see and understand that these are coded as the least savory Mongol types. And therefore, it does not matter what Tolkien's intentions were. Tolkien knew his audience was going to read this and understand that this is linked to these tropes and these stereotypes. And you've also just illustrated the way that fiction and fantasy morphs over time to fit the fears of whatever culture it's in. And so what we get is this sort of inseparable thing that says, okay, maybe our fiction doesn't cause people to be racist, but what it does do is reflect a lot of racist things. And as we have found out, if you hold up a mirror to the racist things and bat signal it into the clouds, you tend to attract some racists. And so what you end up with is this this layer of intersectionality that goes beyond just does D&D cause racism? Because that's not actually what we're talking about. Whether or not D&D causes racism is irrelevant to the fact that you have players who have experienced it and see a lot of the same tropes and a lot of the same fantasy being represented in the games they play. There are two things that come up in the role-playing hobby every time like clockwork, and it is are orcs racist portrayals of peoples? And is drow makeup blackface bad? Uh, and the answer is, in a vacuum, no. Right? Like, the problem is that we don't do things in a vacuum. And the, the problem with that is that it comes back to intentionality and what you are saying by doing the things that you are doing. So when you, someone looks at that, you're ignoring an entire history of things like minstrel shows and blackface and all of those, what that means to a lot of people. And what you are saying, whether or not you intend to or not, is I cannot be bothered to understand that this exists to the point where I will change it to reflect the game in a way that doesn't actually change the game that much. And if you can't be bothered to do that, well then I can't trust you that you are handling these things in a sensitive manner because you're clearly demonstrating to me that you're not. And so what you get is a lot of uh, people who have been marginalized and have that history of generational trauma and like, you know, this marginalization look at people who do that and go collectively, nah, and just don't show up. Of course, this opens up the important question of how we go about incorporating this kind of problematic material in the games we play. This is relevant, not just for representations of race, but also representations of gender or characters with different kinds of mental or physical disabilities. Megan has some useful advice about how we can sensitively and respectfully play characters who are different from us. The short answer to this is we talk and we have a conversation and we try to understand what's going on. Um, so if you have a player who wants to have a character who 
has a disability or is struggling with a mental illness, I think it's really important to understand, okay, what are we trying to achieve here? What, what, what's the reason for this? Is this, it just, um, I think it could be fun and interesting, uh, which that can be a valid answer. You know, maybe it is a thing of, I want to play a character who has condition X. And I think it would be interesting to see how to problem solve around how they deal with the challenges of that. Um, and we want to just make sure we're doing so in a mindful and understanding way. Um, if it's a, I want them to be blind because I think it would be funny, like that's a little bit more of a problem, right? We want to make sure that we're, again, thinking about it. And also it's um, thinking too of like, who are the other players at the table? And are they going to be okay with this? I mean, this can even be a thing of players playing, you know, genders that are different than their assigned gender and their, or their identified gender and like how comfortable are people with that at the table um and trying to figure this out um as far as like mechanics and stuff around different disabilities and things like that i i'm not a fan of like let's just make one mechanic system for this and call it a day you know like i think you got to figure out why the players wanting to do something and then how do we achieve that in the game you know for example it might be a thing of um, you do create a character with ptsd and you do that because the backstory you wrote for them it really makes sense um and you talk with dm about how you foresee that coming up in the game and how they're going to deal with that and we make a plan and we stick to that plan or maybe it's a thing of due to the events in the story are uh, character has developed uh, going into a pretty big depressive episode and how do they work through that and how do they you know you know heal and work with their friends to get to the other side of that it's again if we can do things with thought and with intention um, also wanting to do research um, one humongous resource that I want to push people towards is called writing the other it's a website, they have a book, and it talks about how to write from experiences that aren't your own. And it is a wonderful way to start to understand what it can be like to, you know, if you're an author and you're wanting to write from the perspective of a blind hero, right? And you're not blind, it's really hard to understand what that experience can be like. And so they have master classes that are taught by people within those communities. Um, there's a saying within the the community of nothing about us without us and writing the other is a wonderful tool for that. I think um, as a DM as well, if you're wanting to put more diversity into your game, as far as showing, you know, NPCs with different physical or psychological challenges, do it again, intentionally in a way that's with research. Um, in addition to all of these discussions, Jonathan makes a further point about the nature of tabletop role-playing games. In his master's thesis, he interprets TRPGs using a conceptual framework that has some very interesting implications for issues of agency and protagonism of players. Tabletop gaming specifically has something uh, that comes out of something called the Theater of the Oppressed Tradition by Augusto Boal. And Boal posits the existence of the spect actor. So instead of someone, instead of you know the spectator and the actor, the actor and the audience being completely separate, theater of the oppressed invites the audience to come up and tell stories and join in the process of making theater, essentially, um, for the purposes of social activism and change. So 
Bawal posits that the spec actor is the one that is both watching and in the narrative and can alter and control it based on the conventions of how they ritualize a form of theater, which is basically what tabletop gaming is. You're playing a character for sure, but you're also sitting there, you know, with a story in mind of like where you want your character to go. So you almost hide the mechanisms of this sort of distance between both play, being both player and character at the same time in the conventions of a role-playing game. The future of the oppressed tradition has some especially valuable implications for the question of agency. I invited my guests to reflect on this form of agency of being a specced actor alongside the intersectionalities of oppression and marginalization one might experience. As we concluded, we discussed ways in which having protagonism and narrative control in TRPGs can be empowering to people from marginalized backgrounds. Yeah. <laughs> um, to put it simply, yes. Um, tabletop role-playing games give us the chance to be a hero and to feel heroic. And when we talk about the experiences we have when we're role-playing, we don't talk about, do you remember that time our characters had to cross that bridge and then halfway across the troll jumped up and ambushed us? It's, do you remember that time we had to cross that bridge and that troll attacked us? And how you cast fireball and it caught the bridge on fire and then we're both having to hang onto the bridge and climb up and then your weak but wizard almost fell and I, right? It's our memory, not our character's memory. And that can be incredibly empowering and validating and help us feel like we have agency and control in the world, especially at a time right now, uh, at the time of recording this, we were all in quarantine due to COVID-19. And many people just feel completely out of control because life as they knew it ended. And we don't know if we're getting it back. And that is incredibly scary. And other than staying home, there is so little most of us can do to impact what's going to happen next. And that feeling of powerlessness and helplessness in that is not a fun place to be. And yet when we play role-playing games, we have the power. We, when you get towards level 20, you can actually change the world. You can get a God to intervene and to step up for you. And it is amazing. <laughs> um, and so I, I think it really can change things. There, in the mention of the safety tools, there's another technique called the Luxton technique. Um, it is similar to both the X card and lines and veils, but one of the big differences in it is the player gets a voice. It's not just we X out the scene and we leave the scene. It is, I am struggling with this because. Um, and what I love about it is the player gets an option to say, hey, I really need us to save this kid. This is reminding me of something that happened in my own life that did not end well. And I really need this to end well. I need us to save this kid. Or I need to know that we can redeem this person. And I love that because, again, it's opening communication. And it does allow for, and not maybe a therapeutic experience, but a corrective experience, a place where you do have agency. You did get, you know, again, because that memory of playing games, it is our, our memory. It, and we use the terms of I and you and we, not our characters and Balbazar did this. It's I did this. And there's something very powerful in that. And it needs more studies. Please do more research, everybody. <laughs> but it, it is fascinating. And I think it really can help. Uh, one of the things that safety tools suggest in that what you're doing is that you give the person who is, you know, X, who is Xing out 
chance to retcon the scene in the way that works for them. Um, and that is a great tool if you're all willing to do that together. And there's a lot of intersections around sort of how that functions with taking control away and agency with players. But like the goal in a game is again, it's to have fun. Like it's, you're not trying to therapize your players, hopefully. Um, but you can do a very, you can do very few therapeutic things, but that is, if you're not comfortable doing that, don't do it. Therapeutically, the way it works is that you can do those same things, but you have someone who's willing to play with and has hopefully had some training in all of those kinds, in those kinds of things. And so you can tailor your story the way you want to. Um, you know, you can tailor, and it gives you the chance to not only tell the story as it was written or as what happened, but really step in and examine the parts of it that maybe you didn't get a chance to do. So, like for you know, one of the examples uh, is. Uh, so an example is in one of the classes I was in, we did a, a bunch, we, there was some playing around with the aspects of race. And so like a whole bunch of us were like, we're going to go get tea or whatever. And they would go to get like tea and coffee and all this other stuff. And me and like the only other Asian person in the room were like, you want to get like bubble tea? Like bubble tea sounds great. I haven't had bubble tea in forever. So like everyone else went off to their section to go get coffee and lattes and Starbucks or whatever. And we went to like the other section of the room that was clearly now meant to, to like imitate a bubble tea place. And as we did that, a whole bunch of people were like, oh my God, bubble tea, I forgot that exists. We should go get that. And so they left their Starbucks and went to the bubble tea place. And we were like, oh, okay, right. Now you remember because like now we've reminded you it exists. And so you're like, oh, right, that thing, that's so cool. And now it's cool because you're all here. Uh, which is, if you, you know, if, you, if you've ever seen an experience about someone talking about like, like I'll use me, I'm Filipino-American. Oh, you're Filipino. I love Filipino food. And it's like, I don't care. I love food too. Like that's, I don't go up to you be like, oh, you're American. I love hamburgers. Nobody says that. That's not a thing people say because it, because people understand what culture is. Um, and so you end up with the ability to say like, to play with those sort of themes in a way that lets you call out and see and lets people think about what it is they're doing uh, in a way that you can have some control over the narrative that's being had because you, you're the one bringing the offerings and the asks. And being, as someone who was playing in that, in that scene, just saying, oh, well, now what's popular because you're all here is, it, is like enough for me as a person to be like, oh, yeah, that's why I'm mad about this. Okay, that makes sense. Like, I get it. Like, oh, I get it. Oh, I get it. And so I got what I needed out of it in a way that could potentially, you know, offer that story to other people that's sort of one of those ways that agency is really great to use in that space because you can play. Uh, the idea is in, especially in a therapy group, you can play with those things because the expectation is, is those things will come up in a way that like, I don't want to happen in my weekly Friday night game because I don't like, I didn't pay for it. I didn't pay for that. Thank you very much. This is not the experience I signed up for, but in therapy, we're like, let's, Oh, let's talk about like, you know, let's let's talk about what it is that's a problem. Like race issues of racism are a problem for a lot of people. Like that's a thing. But what that means is that you get to play with those things to say, this is the experience I've lived and how it's affected me in a way that can sort of reveal those things to you. That gives you two benefits: the awareness of the story that you are telling and an audience for that story, people who are listening to you and paying attention. In this episode of the podcast, we've looked at how the tabletop role-playing games we play can help us become more empathetic and understand other people's experiences. 
We talked about ways to make our gaming spaces safe and inclusive. We also looked at how TRPGs allow us to engage with complex issues of our experiences in a safe and contained environment where we have narrative control. This can be especially empowering to people from marginalized backgrounds in identifying and expressing their experiences. I felt these topics needed a much longer episode in order for us to do them justice and to give them the nuance they deserved. I'd like to thank my guests for this episode, Dr. Megan Connell and Jonathan Mendoza, for sharing their expertise and insights on such complex topics, as well as for all the invaluable advocacy and support work they do for mental health in TRPGs. You can find links to their social media in the episode description. The music on this podcast was Wholesome and Deliberate Thought by Kevin McLeod. Details and attribution in the description, along with links to the things we talked about on the episode. You can get in touch with us about the podcast via email at geas.committee at gmail.com or via the Geas Facebook page, Discord, or at Geas Edinburgh on Twitter. My name is Vivek Santayana. I am at Vivek Santayana on Twitter. Thank you so much for tuning in to Quarantine Streams, where quarantine is about the friends we make along the way. Mm-hmm.